Millennium with Rick Mitchell at KBOO.FM. KBOO Radio is proud to co-sponsor the 29th annual Cascade Festival of African Films, happening Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, now through Saturday, March 2nd. Most films will show at the Moriarty Arts and Humanities Building, room 104 at PCC Cascade Campus, 705 North Killingsworth Street in Portland. Again, that's the 29th annual Cascade Festival of African Films, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, now through Saturday, March 2nd. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. It is 6 o'clock. You're listening to KBOO Portland. That's K2H2BH in Philomath on 104.3 FM and K220HR in Hood River on 91.9 FM. And uh, Bread and Roses is away. We're going to listen to Rising Up with Sonali. She's looking at the Southern Poverty Law Center's latest intelligence report examining hate in the United States and how the President of the United States fuels it. Stay tuned. From KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, the North Carolina Board of Elections on Thursday ordered a new race to fill the seat that had been officially won by Republican Mark Harris. Harris called for the 9th District election himself after it was revealed that a political consultant on his campaign engaged in a deliberate, systematic voter fraud scheme. The five-person board, in a unanimous vote, tossed out the November 2018 results. Harris says he had suffered from a recent set of strokes as a result of a sepsis infection, and that apparently clouded his judgment. His opponent, Democrat Dan McCready, is preparing to run again in a new election, but it seems unlikely that Harris will run. The North Carolina voter fraud scandal has roiled local communities in the state. Earlier in the week, Harris's son John, who happens to be a federal prosecutor, testified that he warned his father against hiring the political consultant in question. In other news, Democrats in the House and Senate are preparing to introduce legislation opposing President Donald Trump's national emergency declaration. The House will likely see a bill introduced on Friday, while the Senate, which is not in session on Friday, will see a similar bill on Monday. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said in a statement, quote, If the president's emergency declaration prevails, it will fundamentally change the balance of powers in a way our country's founders never envisioned. That should be a serious wake-up call to senators in both parties who believe in the constitutional responsibility of Congress to limit an overreaching executive. 
Meanwhile, the Pentagon has already apparently asked the Department of Homeland Security for a list of priorities along the U.S.-Mexico border to justify the $3.6 billion that, that Trump wants to reappropriate. In a move that surprised lawmakers, Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan told reporters, we've asked DHS for input, facts, data, priorities. We're waiting to receive those. A federal judge in San Diego, California, is considering expanding a case against the government over immigrant family separation, given that children were being taken away from their parents for many more months than was initially known. The ACLU made the formal request to Judge Dana Sabra, saying that the Trump administration's family separation policy went as far back as July 2017. The case originally considered the separation policy to have begun as late as June 26, 2018. Judge Sobra asked why wouldn't the case, quote, include everyone who has been allegedly unlawfully separated? Why would it be tethered to an arbitrary date of June 26, 2018? In commenting on how little is known about the actual number of children taken away from their parents, Sobra said, we simply don't know. There was no tracking. That's the harsh reality. Justice Department attorney Scott Stewart countered that expanding the case to include all separated families would impose a, quote, significant burden on the government and, quote, blow the case into some other galaxy after the administration has, quote, done all things to correct the wrong. California Congressman Adam Schiff, who chairs the House Intelligence Committee, has written an open letter to Republicans in the Washington Post. In it, he chastised his colleagues over their silence, saying, quote, when the president attacked the independence of the Justice Department by intervening in a case in which he's implicated, you did not speak out. When he attacked the press as the enemy of the people, you again were silent. When he targeted the judiciary, labeling judges and decisions he didn't like as illegitimate, we heard not a word. And now he comes for Congress, the first branch of government, seeking to strip it of its greatest power, that of the purse. Schiff also revealed that many of his Republican colleagues had privately complained about the president and had, quote, deep misgivings about his, quote, lack of decency, character and and integrity and his fundamental inability to tell the truth. Mr. Schiff added, the time for silent disagreement is over. You must speak out. A U.S. Coast Guard officer named Christopher P. Hassan remains in custody after his recent arrest over his plan for a massive domestic terrorist attack. Hassan was arrested a week ago and found to have had a large weapons cache and espoused white supremacist and other extremist views. Federal prosecutors have labeled him a domestic terrorist over his desire for, quote, focused violence to, quote, establish a white homeland and continued to keep him in custody. Hassan apparently used his work computers to plan deadly attacks against politicians and journalists and to study the attempts of mass shooters. Later on today's show, we'll cover the Southern Poverty Law Center's latest intelligence report examining hate in the U.S. and how Donald Trump fuels it. Heidi Byrick, who leads the SBLC's intelligence project, will be our guest. Meanwhile, Empire star Jussie Smollett turned himself into Chicago police after being charged with staging an attack on himself. A judge set his bail at $100,000 and Smollett paid a $10,000 bond and was released. Chicago police attributed their charges to interrogations of two men that Smollett had apparently paid $3,500 to for staging the attack. They also cited the city's vast network of surveillance cameras in tracing the path of the alleged attackers. 
Law enforcement have been unusually outspoken in the high-profile case, with Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson going as far as saying that Smollett was taking, quote, advantage of the pain and anger of racism to promote his career. The UCLA College of Social Sciences has just released its annual Hollywood Diversity Report ahead of the Academy Awards. Analyzing the top-grossing films and television shows of 2017, the report concludes that the nation's increasingly diverse audiences want to watch more diverse films and shows. While there were gains made by non-white communities compared to last year's report, the report concluded that people of color remained underrepresented on every industry employment front in 2016-17. Additionally, women made some progress, particularly as film leads and directors, but, quote, remained underrepresented on every front in 2016-17. and 17. For the first time in more than 20 years, Oakland, California's teachers are walking off their jobs. An official strike began on Thursday as the approximately 3,000 teachers demanded wage raises and greater support staff, such as nurses and counselors. More than 36,000 students at 86 schools are impacted. A massive gathering of parents and children supported the teachers at a rally on Thursday evening outside Oakland City Hall. Mayor Libby Schaff has expressed support for the striking educators. Negotiations with the district will resume on Friday. In international news, more than 100 people died in Bangladesh when a car exploded in a busy street in the capital Dhaka on Wednesday night. The car was powered by natural gas and one of its cylinders ignited. The New York Times described how a wall of fire surged across the street, engulfing bicycles, rickshaws, cars, people, everything in its path. Then the blast flipped the car. It ignited several other cylinders that were being used at a street-side restaurant. Then a plastic store on the ground floor of a nearby building caught fire. Then a small shop that was illegally storing chemicals burst into flames. An architect in Dhaka told reporters, this isn't about poverty, it's about greed. The people storing these chemicals in residential buildings are rich, they have cars, nice homes, children studying abroad. Bangladesh is one of the world's poorest nations and has been racked in recent years with deadly fires and infrastructure failures. And finally, in Venezuela, the embattled government of Nicolas Maduro says it will block the nation's borders in an attempt to keep out aid being forced onto the country by outside powers seeking regime change. Maduro threatened to close the border with Colombia and announced a border closure with Brazil. On Friday, news emerged that a government military convoy shot at a group of indigenous civilians attempting to keep part of the Venezuela-Brazil border open and killed one woman. And that does it for our headlines today. Later on the show, we'll air a leaked video of Tucker Carlson's off-the-rails interview with European historian Rutger Bregman, which has gone viral. Bregman had been a guest on our show and will re-air our conversation with him. Stay tuned. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kohatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. The Southern Poverty Law Center has released a new report about the number of hate groups peaking in the U.S. 
the year 2018 was the fourth year in a row that the number of hate groups rose. The organization lays the blame for the rise in hate groups in part on Trump. According to the report, Trump has activated a growing fear in many white Americans who view their power as threatened by our country's rapidly changing demographics. He is taking advantage of their rage against change, end of quote. The LCLC report comes just as a white supremacist man named Christopher Paul Hassan was arrested in Maryland after federal law enforcement found a massive weapons cache at his home. Hassan was apparently planning a major domestic terrorist attack aimed at politicians, journalists, and even possibly Supreme Court justices. He wanted to, quote, establish a white homeland and is reported to have said, quote, I am dreaming of a way to kill almost every last person on the earth. Soon after his arrest, President Trump declared the New York Times the enemy of the people on Twitter for their coverage of his potential wrongdoings. The Times retorted that his rhetoric continues to be dangerous and encourages violence against journalists. My guest is Heidi Byrick. She leads the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, which publishes the award-winning intelligence report and the Hate Watch blog. Welcome to the program, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me. So this latest report is the latest edition of the Intelligence Report. Tell us a little bit about this report. It's something that predates the Trump administration, right? Yes, we've been publishing an annual year in hate report, which includes our list of hate groups, anti-government groups, our hate map for quite a few decades now. And so this is something we do annually, and what it is is a census of hate groups across America. So we released our numbers for 2018 of active hate groups on Wednesday. So the report has found, as I mentioned, uh, four years in a row now of steadily rising hate groups. Um, so it's it's measuring the number of organized groups, right? Not We're not talking about individuals here. These are actually groups that self-identify in various ways. That's exactly right. We're not counting individual people. What we're counting are organizations that essentially push or believe hateful ideologies. So these are like, you know, groups that are card-carrying organizations that have a membership and a structure and chapters across the nation. So, you know, there are also, of course, many, many unaffiliated individuals across the United States that are involved on the web or in other ways in hate activities. That's not what we count. We count groups. Right. And so in some ways, um, if you actually were to try to estimate how deep uh, and widespread um, sort of this this sentiment is, it would be even bigger because there are plenty of people who don't officially affiliate with these groups, but who may espouse the ideology. Now, uh, 2018, as we said, was the fourth year in a row that these number of hate groups peaked. But of course, Trump has only been in power for two years. So how do you link the Trump administration and specifically President Trump's rhetoric and the rhetoric of those in his administration with this trend? Well, here's the thing. The four-year period that we've seen hate groups go up tracks exactly with Trump's announcement of his run for the presidency, so his campaign, and then his first few years in the presidency. What's interesting about this is we've now hit an all-time peak in the number of hate groups, the most we've ever counted at the Southern Poverty Law Center, 1,020. And there's been a 30% jump in those four years. 
in the three years prior to that, sort of the waning years of Obama's second term, the number of hate groups was actually falling. We, we hit a low in the high 700s at that time. So that's why we ascribe this to Trump. But, you know, of course, there's more than that. There's also the fact that Trump has enlivened these groups. He's tweeted out some of their material. He's played to them, his anti-immigrant sentiment and so on. These are all things that make white supremacists very, very happy. And the segments of the movement that are most tightly tied to Trump, what we call white nationalists, the sort of people you think of Richard Spencer right after the election, you know, saying hail Trump at an event in D.C. Those folks actually saw a rise of 48 groups just between 2017 and 2018. Now, uh, in your report, you identify the alt-right, which is this interesting catch-all phrase, um, sometimes attributed to Steve Bannon, who was until recently or until a couple of years ago a um, member of the White House um, staff. Uh, and you say the alt-right in the report is still killing people. Explain, and, and it feels like that term has sort of gone out of fashion since Bannon left the White House. Um, but uh, how do you define what the alt-right is? And and how are, I mean, we're not ta just talking about espousing hate. We're actually talking about murder here that's linked to the hate, right? People are being killed. That's exactly right. So we put out a report about a year ago called The Alt-Right is Killing People, and we talked about the very high numbers of dead that had happened in a very short period of time. Just in this last year, there are 40 people who've been killed in the U.S. and Canada by people who ascribe to alt-right ideologies. And what I mean by alt-right is this. These are groups that are racist, bigoted, anti-Semitic, but something that makes them different than past uh, white supremacists is they are also extremely misogynistic. Women hating has become an integral part of what are essentially millennial racists. You know, the alt-right is a term that young racists have used to brand themselves. There's no question that Steve Bannon caught on to it. And, you know, he said that Breitbart his website at the time was the platform for the alt-right. But the major players here are pretty young, and they're mostly young males who became radicalized into white supremacy online. And the online space, for those who are unfortunate like me to have to spend time in it where racists kind of you know hang out, is so misogynistic. It's really a new thing that we did not see, say, in the first decade of this millennium. And so uh, you include the 2014 killings by Elliot Roger, the, um, the, the shooter uh, in Santa Barbara, who very clearly, who made it very clear that his target was, his targets were women. Um, but then there's also Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland, Florida shooter. Uh, so you have right there the sort of intersection of gun violence or gun proliferation and the this uh, nationalist and white supremacist hate hateful ideology that's right. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that Nicholas Cruz posted a lot of racist stuff online. That's what gets him to be included. And we start with Elliot Roger because he was the first um, person to really go out and want to commit violence against women specifically. Elliot Roger is actually a hero in these misogynistic racist worlds. They call him things like Sir Elliot. And so it's very important that we mark it with that attack. And, you know, this last year has seen more attacks on women. You'll probably remember the van attack in Toronto where a person who was affiliated with one of these misogynistic groups killed a bunch of women on the street. There was also a killing right after the midterm elections in Tallahassee, Florida, 
where a man shot two women in a yoga yoga studio and it turned out he also was rapidly misogynistic hmm. so there's a wide swath of uh, a wide spectrum of hate that um these organizations direct um, their anger toward uh, many demographics, women, immigrants, Muslims. Um, and, and you uh, point out in the quote that I read that this is basically a rage against change. So we're talking about a change where the country is becoming browner. The country is also one where women have more opportunities than before. Is this a reaction, a sort of dying gasp of um, white male patriarchy and power in the U.S.? Well, I think you really can see it that way. I mean, what this is is a movement that cannot stand increasing rights for people of color of all kinds, increasing rights for women, and they're absolutely terrified by the fact that the census tells us sometime in the 2040s white people will be a minority in this country. In other words, the U.S. will be extremely diverse and there'll be no majority population. These are people who fear that deeply. And Trump has really tapped into that by raging against immigrants because that is the population that's growing the quickest and from the point of view of a white supremacist is displacing white males. So yeah, I mean, I'd like to think it's a last dying gasp, um, but it's certainly something that is enraging people and, you know, what you got to worry about is more violence from these folks. We've just seen this, co for, you know, Coast Guard employee who was arrested who wanted to create a white homeland by using mass violence. You think about Robert Bowers in the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue shooting. Eleven people were killed and he wanted to kill Jews because he thought that they were bringing immigrants into this country. These fears that this particular population has, white males has, a segment of it, are turning out to be quite violent. And that's the thing that we really have to keep our eye on because the country is going to become more diverse and more and different kinds of people than in our history are going to be elected into positions of power, are going to run businesses. This is all a wonderful thing for the United States. But there is this group of people who are adamantly opposed to those changes and are willing to use violence to stop them. There's that adage that uh, those who've been in power for so long view equality as oppression, and it seems to apply here. Um, I want to hone in on the anti-immigrant sentiment briefly. 2018, which is what this inter latest intelligence report covers, was the year where Trump um, glommed onto the migrant caravan or the refugee caravan from Central America. Um, that was headed to the U.S. and found safety in numbers and wanted to, most the majority of them, as we understand it, apply or use, you know, use their international right to apply for asylum in the U.S. How did Trump's rhetoric specifically about that caravan feed into the hate in 2018? Well, there's no question that it was a major factor. I mean, one thing I think makes the point here is Robert Bowers, the Pittsburgh shooter, was referring to the caravan as invaders, which is exactly the language which Trump has used against the caravans, but also immigrants in general. In other words, a mass killer parroted back Trump's words to him. So these attacks on immigrants and on Muslims are things that we have seen people who commit mass violence are repeating from the president. And of course, the president, when he says these things, these horrible things, is validating, validating racism, bigotry, hatred for people like are in the hate groups that we track. You know, they are able to then say, 
Well, it's not just me who thinks the white genocide is happening. Trump says these people are invaders. And you know, what I often say to folks about this is what do you do with invaders? What is an invasion? You know, it's it's an armed insurrection taking over your country. It's no surprise that some people will pick up, pick up a gun to push back. And, you know, we could also talk about hate crimes here. It doesn't just have to be domestic terrorism. We have data at the SPLC for the days after the election and the months after the election showing that immigrants and Muslims were some of the biggest targets for hate crimes in that time period. And hate crimes in general have been going up for the last three years since, um, you know, Trump came on the scene. So this is what happens when you use the bully pulpit for bullying ends. Uh, I also want to focus in on violence against the LGBTQ community. Um, this is a community that has been targeted by the Republican Party as a whole in state-by-state state, um, bills um, undermining their rights, and certainly the Trump administration in one of the latest examples being um, reversing, uh, basically putting a ban on transgender uh, service members in the military. How um, serious are attacks on this community um, and how how do we draw that line between the tr Trump administration but even members of Congress and, and other sort of poli uh, political figures? Well, first of all, the LGBT uh, population is extremely vulnerable to hate crimes. They suffer from vo um, violent hate crimes at levels far above what they, they appear in the population. But perhaps one of the most terrible things about this new administration is you have an alliance the base, really, of uh, Trump's, you know, Trump's whole base is an alliance of this, anti-immigrant organizations and their followers, anti-Muslim organizations, and anti-LGBT organizations. So his base is made up of people who would like to strip civil rights from these groups. So what, what have we seen? ICE raids, deportations, terrible asylum po policies, lowering of refugee numbers, et cetera. That comes from the anti-immigrant movement. The anti-Muslim movement resulted in the Muslim ban, for example, and other policies. These are hate groups who work closely with the White House and then came up with these policies that were then enacted. And then you have the Christian right organizations who do not want the LGBT population to be treated equally and fairly in this country. From them, you get the trans ban and the, and the, the removal of all kinds of information about LGBT civil rights from websites that the, that the government controls, for example. And, and so we have this sort of alliance of hate that is the backing of the Trump administration. And it shows in the rhetoric, it shows in the policy, and it shows in rising hate crimes and violence against these minority groups. How does social media help to proliferate the hate? Because uh, before social media, before the internet, uh, there had to be sort of door-to-door -door organizing. Um, no matter what you're organizing around, you have to sort of physically pass out flyers or new publish newspapers and get them around. Maybe there was radio and other sort of uh, means of communication. Today, we have the internet. This is a really important point that you're bringing up, Sonali, is the issue of the online space. Look, in the 1990s, if you wanted to get involved in hate group activity, it was pretty hard to find a Klansman, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, you had to somehow, you couldn't look it up in the phone book, right? There wasn't any obvious way. You had to, like, run into someone, somehow get on a mailing list, get an invite. It was really hard to connect people to this kind of extremist propaganda or people who believed in it. But with the advent of the web in the late 90s and into the 2000s, everything changed. 
And now you see propaganda and material, you see it exposed to children, to adults of all kinds, in ways that would have never happened 20 years ago. And we know that some of the, the major white supremacist killers were radicalized completely online. Dylan Roof, the Charleston shooter, he used Google searches, basically, which pushed him further and further down this sort of hate rabbit hole. Uh, it's, it's a serious issue. So one of the things that the Southern Poverty Law Center is working with about 50 other civil rights organizations is trying to get the mainstream platforms, places like Facebook and Twitter, to get hateful materials off of their sites. Um, and after the Charlottesville uh, riots and the violence that happened there in August of 2017, most mainstream uh, internet companies are trying to do something about this. They're not all perfect. They haven't gone as far as we would like. But at least there's an understanding now that you really are radicalizing people, in particular young males, into this stuff, just like ISIS can radicalize people by using the web. So we have to do something about the online space. You know, when I talk about why are hate groups going up, I point to Donald Donald Trump, his policies in that realm, and then I point to the web. And both of them are important here. Now, you also identify Vice President Mike Pence in your report, who often flies under the radar um, and is just sort of cast as this pious, you know, um, straightforward man who might have a few hateful bones in his body, but only because he's a Christian. Um, what, what, uh, what should we worry about Mike Pence? Well, I mean, that base that I was talking about with Trump, when it comes to the anti-LGBT world, that's the world Pence came up in. Mm. He is the Christian rights man in the White House. And so, you know, if Trump were somehow to disappear tomorrow, we would still have a person with bigoted and extreme views in the, in the presidential seat. He's very close to groups that we list as anti-LGBT hate groups like the Family Research Council and the Alliance Defending Freedom. He rejected uh, a hate crimes bill in Indiana when he was the governor of that state. He passed what's called a quote-unquote religious freedom bill, but really what those bills are about is reducing the rights of the LGBT population. And he's no friend of Muslims either. So, you know, we would still have problems if Pence was became president tomorrow that are like what we're seeing today. And I think Pence often, you know, you're right, he flies under the radar. People don't realize what a radical background he actually comes from. So we have this situation where there's um, all of these horrendous attacks. If people, real uh, communities are in real danger. They're in danger for their lives. They're demonized. They're constantly um, dehumanized. And yet our, you know, and it's stemming from our government, which means that the very institution that is supposed to protect us from this is egging it on. And, and that's a terrifying moment. And meanwhile, we're told that we have to worry about immigrants pouring over the border and committing mass violence, um, but all of the real violence is being ignored. There's also this um, gleeful uh, enjoyment that we see from the right-wing media about the Jussie Smollett story, you know, the, the black gay actor uh, from the show Empire, who has now been arrested and facing charges about him having staged an attack by, you know, uh, Trump supporters. Um, but, you know, it's very rare, isn't it, that attacks like that are ever staged, the very real attacks of the kind that Jesse Smollett said that he was a victim of are happening and not getting much, much coverage because often the victims aren't celebrities. 
Well, this is a good point. I mean, there is data out of Cal State San Bernardino that tried to figure out what percentage of hate crimes were fake hate crimes or hate crime hoaxes as the right wing media likes to call these. And they found it was a very, very small number. I think it's actually quite sad um, that these media outlets and folks on the right wing would use a couple examples to undermine the fact that we have real hate violence happening in this country. You know, the FBI tracks five to 6,000 hate crimes a year, but the Department of Justice has done survey research that shows that the number of hate crimes in this country are about 250,000 a year. In other words, we wow. only capture the data on 5% of these cases. And if we had the data, if we went through the process of training law enforcement to collect this, making victims feel safe, working with community groups, all the kinds of things you'd have to do, that would put hate violence, if it was at 250,000 a year, on a level with lots of other violent crimes. So I find it very cynical to take the Jesse Smollett case and undermine which what is a real pro problem in this country. And I'd just like to say in this context, for those who want to think that all hate crimes are fake, you know, the United Kingdom, which has a population of about 80 million people, collects information and prosecutes 60,000 hate crimes a year. And I don't think that that's all a bunch of hoaxes. Hmm. Heidi, uh, there are the extremist groups that identify with what's coming out of the White House, but then there's also anti-government groups, um, which is an interesting uh, aspect of these hate groups. Um, and I'm wondering if you can explain, first of all, what's in the report around um, how we see a rise in anti-government hate groups in the year 2018, but also what the relationship is between these groups, how they they view the current government. Sure. Okay, so anti-government groups have an interesting pattern. They tend to fall when Republicans are in office and rise when, de and I'm talking about the presidency, when Democrats are in office. That largely has to do with one of the main issues for the anti-government movement is fear of losing their guns, right, gun control. They're really worked up about that. These are not, now when I say anti-government groups, I'm not talking about somebody who wants a smaller government or lower taxes. These are organizations that believe in grand global conspiracies. One of their favorites was that Obama was gonna work with the UN, get these black helicopters in and round people up and put them in FEMA camps. They're really extreme conspiracy mongers and Alex Jones, for example, who's like the king of conspiracies, is very popular um, with these folks. So true to the historical pattern, we saw about a 10% drop in the number of anti-government groups between 2017 and 2018 down to uh, 612 this year. This could change in a minute if politics changes. If somehow a Democrat wins in 2020, we'll see this, this, these organizations ramp up again. What's interesting is in the 1990s when you also had a very, very large anti-government militia movement now, there are elements of hate in these sectors that we didn't used to see. A lot of anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant rhetoric among these groups, and some of them even showed up at the Charlottesville you know, hate protests in 2017, and we've seen some militia members show up at hate events. That's really quite different than in the past. Mm. Um, the one thing that hasn't happened for them in the last year or two is given them anything to really rally around. They feel like Trump is protecting the policies and issues they care about. You might remember the Bundy Ranch standoff in 2014 or the Malheur um, takeover of that wildlife refuge in Oregon two years later. They, those were things that this movement used to rally people. They haven't had something like this this year. But believe you me, if they feel like Trump is at threat or the White House is going to swing to the left in 2020, we will see more and more people added to the ranks of this movement.
Finally, Heidi, I want to ask you about the responses from Trump supporters, and I don't just mean individual supporters, but, you know, the entire operation, those in the Republican Party, White House staffers and administrators that, um, you know, will respond to this report with extreme skepticism and claim deniability between the president's rhetoric, their own rhetoric, and these hate group, uh, the rise in the hate groups, the hate crimes, they feel that there is no relation whatsoever, even though that relation is so apparent to the rest of us um, and so apparent to people like yourself who track it and who do these detailed reports on it. How do you respond when they say there's, you know, Trump, uh, Trump is not fomenting this, don't link Trump to this? Well, they probably will say that. Last year, a spokesperson, you know, we also had the numbers were up last year, not as high as this year. A spokesperson um, from the White House dismissed our report. Um, I guess I'll just let Joe Scarborough of MSNBC, the former Republican congressman, speak to me. He said this morning that Trump was directly responsible for that Coast Guard guy who had Scarborough on, a, on his enemies list, his kill list. And I think that that's what's happening here, regardless of what people in the administration want to say. They have created a climate of hate that has led to more hate violence, more domestic terrorism, an energized, energized white supremacist movement. There's just basically no way to dispute the facts unless you want to stick your head in the sand. Right. Uh, and you, you were referring to Christopher Paul Hassan, the, the man that we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the former Coast Guard uh, person who among his targets uh, was not just Joe Scarborough, Nancy Pelosi, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Kamala Harris and others. Um, well, yeah, it, it's very, very interesting. I mean, and I, I'm sort of thinking of the accusations that Ilhan Omar faced of being anti-Semitic when she called out the power of the Israeli lobby from the same administration that feeds so much anti-Semitism and, and, and whose rhetoric, you know, led to the, the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre uh, as well. So we just see such terrible double standards. Um, well, I want to thank you so much, Heidi, for joining us today. We're out of time. Where can people read the report themselves and share it? Sure. It's on our website at splcenter.org, right on the front page, if you're interested. And we link to it directly as well. Thank you so much, Heidi, for your time. Thanks for having me. Heidi Byrick leads the SPLC's Intelligence Project, which publishes the award-winning Intelligence Report, the latest edition of which just was published, uh, as well as the Hate Watch blog. We've been discussing that report and how the Trump administration fuels hate. I'm Sonali Kolhatka. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali.
KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson had a now-famous exchange with a prominent European historian named Rutger Bregman that only became public after a video of the encounter was leaked. Bregman is the author of Utopia for Realists, The Case of a Universal Basic Income, Open Borders, and a 15-Hour Workweek. After he addressed wealthy elites in Davos, Switzerland, Carlson invited Bregman for an interview, but then lost his temper in an expletive-filled rant. A video of the tape recording that never aired has now gone viral. Here is an excerpt of the exchange. America is still pretty much the most powerful country in the world, right? So um, if, it, if it really would want to, it could easily crack down on, uh, on tax paradises. But the thing is, I mean, you guys have brought into power a president that doesn't even want to show its own tax returns. Uh, I mean, who knows how many billions he has hidden in the Cayman Islands or in Bermuda. Um, so I think the issue really is, is, is one of corruption and of people being bribed and of not being, you know, not talking about the real issues. Uh, what the family, you know, what the Murdochs basically want you to do is to scapegoat immigrants instead of talking about tax avoidance. So I'm, I'm glad you're now finally raising the issue. But that's what's been, been happening for the past couple of years. Uh-huh. And I'm taking, I'm taking orders from the Murdochs, is that what you're saying? No, I mean, it doesn't work that directly. But, I mean, you've been part of the Cato Institute, right? You're, you've been a senior fellow there for well, years. You've been, wait, you've wait, been wait, taking wait, their wait, dirty wait, money. Wait, wait, They're funded by Koch billionaires, you know? Wait, why don't you tell me how it does work? Well, it works by you taking their dirty money. It's as easy as that. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. And I'm glad you now finally jumped the bandwagon, you know, of people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. But you're not, you're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem, actually. AOC, wait, but can I just say? And you, it's true, right? It's true, right, that all the, all the anchors... All the anchors on Fox, <laughs> they're all millionaires. How is this possible? Well, it's very easy. You're just not talking about certain things. It doesn't even, Fox doesn't even play where you are. It doesn't play where you are. <laughs> well, have you heard of the internet? <laughs> I can watch things whatever I want, you know? I have, actually. I, I, I can't say I'm a great fan of your show, but I do my homework when you invite me on your show. So... I mean, you're probably not going to air this, uh, but... But I am talking about this issue. Yeah, only now. Come on, you jumped the bandwagon. You're all like, oh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's not very convincing, to be honest. Why don't you go f*** yourself, you tiny brain, and I hope this gets picked up, because you're a moron. I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too annoying for me. You can't handle the criticism, can you? That's a now viral exchange between Fox News' Tucker Carlson and historian Rutger Bregman during an interview that never aired. Bregman was a guest on our show when his book was published in 2016, and today we'll re-air our conversation with him. Imagine a life where you didn't need to work more than 15 hours a week to make ends meet. One where you weren't restricted by the place of your birth and the stamp on your passport and where financial worries were not the main driver of your major life decisions. 
Sounds like utopia, right? But what if such a world were actually far more within our reach than we thought? Well, it turns out that long-term trends show that humans as a whole are actually moving in this very direction, and that there is already plenty of research proving that the time has come to realize such a utopia, at least according to my guest, Rutger Bregman. He is the best-selling author of the book Utopia for Realists, The Case of a Universal Basic Income, Open Borders, and a 15-hour work week. He's considered one of Europe's most prominent young thinkers. Welcome to the program, Rutger. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, I think you're right that the time to consider this idea has come about. There's several folks, including yourself, these days who are talking about this idea of a basic universal income. However, you know, we constantly hear such terrible statistics about poverty and starvation the world over, uh, poor rates of literacy, mortality, uh, poor health, etc. Does that obscure how much progress humans have actually made over the last two centuries? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. You know, many people base their worldview on what they see and hear on the news. Uh, but the news is always about exceptions, you know, things that go wrong, about corruption, about terrorism, about all sorts of crises. And I'm, I'm not saying all these things aren't real. I'm just saying that you don't often hear about the things that don't happen or just the small steps in progress that we make every single day. So there's never a headline that says, Today, breaking news, uh, 10 or 6 billion people went to work and back again today. Or breaking news, child mortality declined by 0.000000% today. You know, those, those, all, those kind of things are invisible, but they're very important in the long run. Hmm. So what, uh, I mean, and we should also realize here in the U.S., a 40-hour work week is considered sort of normal. Anything above that, you could get overtime. A lot of people do end up working more than that. Mm -hmm. However, there was a time, of course, when the 40-hour work week was considered utopia, right? Yeah, definitely, you know. Um, for a very long time, from about 1850, so about 19, 1980, the work week in all the Western world declined, kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, so there were people back in the 1930s, for example, John Maynard Keynes, the very famous economist, who predicted that by 2030, we would have a work week of about 15 hours a week. Uh, now, this sounds like a pretty crazy prediction, prediction to us nowadays, but actually, you know, up until the 60s and the 70s, almost all the economists and sociologists, all the trend watchers, everyone believed that this was going to happen at some point anyway, simply because we were getting richer. A 15-hour work week, basically that's people working about three hours a day. Uh, the standard response to that, and this is one prong of the three prongs of utopia that you discussed in your book, of, uh, the standard response to a 15-hour work week would be, that's ridiculous. Um, you'll end up with a society of lazy people and we just can't mm -hmm. afford it. So what's your response to that? Well, I think that you shouldn't get me wrong. I think that we should work less, do less paid work in order to do more. Uh, so what we see nowadays is that many people are stuck in a job that they even themselves consider kind of pointless or useless. Uh, there was a poll in the UK and they asked people, uh, do you think your job adds anything of value to the world? Uh, and 37% 30, of 
all the people who were asked this question said no. So there is a huge amount of waste in our current system of work. That's why I think we should do less paid labor in order to, in order to have more time to care work. Right. And, and you point out in your book that we are working harder than ever in paid work to create products that we don't really need and in many cases some of us can't even afford but then we work hard so that we can afford them and so our uh, consumer-based economy is set up to actually be a very wasteful economy even though neoliberal economic supporters of this system argue that it's the most innovative way it's you know it, it encourages innovation encourages competition and is the most efficient uh, way to to, to set up our economy. How wasteful is our economic uh, system right now? Well, pretty wasteful, definitely. I mean, we're continuously buying stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like, and we do that with money we don't even have. Uh, so what I would think is that we have to go back to all these old ideas of economists like John Maynard Keynes and John Stuart Mill, who said that we should trade a little bit of our prosperity for more le leisure time. And as I said, you know, we've been doing this for one and a half centuries, right until the 1980s. And it's only a very short while, just 30 years ago, that we started working more again. Um, but I think that we should use all the, for example, the automation. Many people are talking about this right now, that the robots that are coming for our jobs. And I think this is actually a good thing. You know, we should use that uh, to work less and do more what we really care about. Yeah, j jobs are for robots and life is for people. So so let's talk about uh, the other aspect of your um, big ideas book that uh, would really be a you know wonderful thing if people were to be able to make it a reality, and that is for a universal basic income. I mean, I'm one of those people who are lucky enough to have a very meaningful job. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but boy, do I wish I was getting paid enough to make ends meet, right? Uh, often meaningful work in our society, like journalism, like those who are teachers, etc., just don't get paid enough, and so we're constantly struggling. Mm -hmm. How um, real is this idea, and what is it really based on? A universal basic income that the government simply distributes a modest amount of m cash in people's pockets? Well, I think that what would happen if you would give a basic income uh, to everyone is that many people on the bottom of society, like the garbage men, the teachers, and the care workers, you know, they would have a lot of more bargaining power. They could always say, you know, uh, I can fall back on my basic income and stop doing my paid work. And that means that uh, the basic income will sort of work like a universal strike fund. It will mean that the wages of these people who do the really useful, meaningful work uh, will get higher and higher. Um, and what we see nowadays you know, in our capitalistic system of the moment is that sometimes it seems completely upside down. So we, the people who have all these jobs that they even the, the, themselves consider meaningless, sometimes uh, like, like bankers or corporate lawyers or uh, PR consultants, you know, these are the people that often say, when researchers ask them, do you, do you find your job useful? They often say, well, actually not. Uh, and the weird thing is that they earn the most money. Now, I think that basic income would be an instrument to turn that around. Now, uh, the idea that you would give people money, especially 
poor people money is something that goes against even what a lot of liberal politicians uh, recommend. I mean, this uh, mm -hmm. this week is a, 50, a 20th anniversary of the welfare reform uh, laws that Bill Clinton enacted, a liberal Democratic mm -hmm. president um, who really uh, kind of undermined this idea that uh, you can trust poor people to make decisions about themselves. What is the research mm -hmm. out there that shows, and you point out that you know poor people are not idiots. Has it been studied what happens yeah. when you just give people who are poor a bunch of money rather than services? I mean, our standard approach these days well, to I, dealing I with poverty is, is let's educate them, let's give them help, but not actually put cash in their hands. Well, I studied tens of experiments that have been happening all around the world. So from Canada to the US, uh, the Netherlands, and in, in England, and also in a lot of developing countries in the global south. And time and time again, what researchers have found is that poverty is not so much a lack of character, but it's just a lack of money. Uh, so what we see in the data is that that's an obvious that thing, right? People, Obviously, poverty is a lack of money. Well, often we think that poverty is a lack of character. So what we see in the data is that many poor people make decisions that aren't very smart. So they get more loans that they can't repay. They eat less healthily. They don't uh, uh, raise their kids well enough. And often people, especially on the conservative side, says there's something like you know uh, a, a, a character of, of, of being poor. That's not, that there's something intrinsically wrong with poor people. This is what Margaret Thatcher actually said. She said that poverty is a character deficit. Um, but what the research shows is that everyone would make unwise decisions if they would live in a context of poverty. Uh, there's really fascinating research that's been done, for example, by Elder Shafir from Princeton University. And what they did, for example, they went to India and they, um, uh, they asked sugarcane farmers to do an intelligence test before and after the harvest. Now, the thing with sugarcane farmers in India is that they receive almost all of their income, of their yearly income, uh, half of it, after the harvest. So before the harvest, they're poor, and after that, they're rich. And guess what? After the harvest, uh, they have 13 more IQ points than before it. So this is huge. You know, it's the same effect as, as alcoholism or losing a night's sleep. So financial uh, security basically makes you... through the research into poverty. So financial security allows you to make or enables you psychologically to just make better decisions about your life because you're not in a yes. constant stress. Yes, and if you think about it, that's actually, that's actually an astonishing finding because it means that if you eradicate poverty, then your whole country will get smarter. Uh, if you eradicate poverty, then that will probably be, in the long run, an investment. You know, we have research, for example, from the U.S. that shows that just child poverty already costs $500 billion each year. Now, what would it cost to eradicate poverty in the U.S.? Only $175 billion. Hmm. So this is, this is an investment that, that, that will give you a huge return on investment. You know, every entrepreneur, every businessman would say, you know, <laughs> I would do the investment. I would jump at it. Tell us about the example that you write about of uh, the Cherokee uh, Indians in North Carolina and what happened when they built a casino, a tribe that went from you know, being so poor that the children in the tribe mm -hmm. had terrible um, indicators. What happened after they became wealthy? Yeah, this was, this was quite a coincidence. So what happened in the 90s is that a casino opened uh, in North uh, in uh, North Carolina, 
and all the the earnings or a lot of the earnings were distributed among the members of the uh, uh, of the tribe, the Indians tribe. Um, and a coincidence would have it that just a few years before that, Jane Costello, a professor of Duke University, had started researching about 1,400 kids who lived in that neighborhood. Uh, so she could see what the psychological effect of raising uh, kids out of poverty would be. And it was huge. Uh, they even found out that in the long run, this money paid for itself. So. Uh, the reductions in healthcare costs and lower crime rates and, uh, for example, better investments in education and higher tax incomes and all those kinds of things, they were, they were actually higher than, than the initial cash, cash transfer had even been. Um, so yeah, this is some of the most fascinating research that we, uh, that we now know about. Hmm. Uh, the, you also cite an example in your book about what happened when, uh, I think it was uh, homeless uh, veterans that received a chunk of cash. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is remarkable. Um, tell, tell us about this, essentially a social experiment. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most bizarre stories, I guess, in my book. You know, what they did in, in 2010 in the city of London is they had uh, about 13 homeless people who had been living on the streets for sometimes almost 40 years. So these, 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 these men were sometimes really regarded as hopeless. You know, everything had been tried by the care workers at that point. Um, so it was time for something new, and at some point, someone thought, you know, why not? Why not try free money instead? You know, let's just see what happens. Let's give them three thousand pounds and see what happens. So that's what they did, and um, many of the care workers said, you know, this is this is probably not going to work. You know, many were very skeptical, but whatever. Let's see what happens. And you know, the astonishing result was that just a year after the experiment had started, seven of the thirty men. Uh, had a roof above their head, and two more had applied for housing. Uh, so even the economists, you know, the the, uh, the uh, uh, magazine that's always in favor of the free market, etc. Even they said um, that the most efficient way to spend money on the homeless might be just to give it to them. So if we, we've been doing it wrong for years and decades, you know, in development aid, in our welfare systems, we've 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 been trying to do work with education and teaching poor people, and all, all the time we we thought that there's something wrong with poor people or homeless people. But the thing is, they just lack money, and it's quite easy to solve their problem. And it's just, just such a it's such a straightforward solution that's not based on patronizing poor people, because a lot of these ideas Definitely. that yeah. you know instead of putting money in people's hands, we should teach them a skill, we should give them a loan, we should uh, provide them schools. Well, you know, yes, all of those things are great, but then a, a chunk of cash in someone's hands, yeah. allowing for them to make the best decisions about their lives, simply not just gives them dignity, but also it turns out has the best outcome. And in the end, you the government ends up spending much less money on that same person than they would have to to do to provide government assistance. It's it's pretty yeah, remarkable. definitely. And, and you know, don't get me wrong. I, I don't think that education is useless. Right, of course. I mean, that there are many courses, for example, in financial liter li literacy. The poor really do learn something in all kinds of courses. But as as Professor Shafir said to me, it's the same thing as teaching someone to swim, and then throwing him into the ocean. You know, of course, that person will drown. It's, it's not that he didn't learn anything, but the context is just too overwhelming. So you first have to change that context. And then, you know, there's, uh, education will def definitely be important.
Right. But and, first, and you have to get people out of poverty. My guest is Rutger Bregman. He's the best-selling author of the book Utopia for Realists, The Case of a Universal Basic Income, Open Borders, and a 15-hour Workweek. I'm going to keep Rutger on with us for an extended conversation, particularly tackling the open borders part of his book. And you can find that interview on the premium content section of our website. This is Rising Up with Sonali. I'm your host. Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy Award-winning band Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com/slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com. Roasting 200 years of corporate constitutional rights, 1819 to 2019, notes the anniversary of the first U.S. Supreme Court decision granting constitutional rights to business corporations. The event features a photography exhibit, trivia, conversation, and presentations about how we can reclaim people's constitutional rights and dismantle corporate rights. Again, that's Roasting 200 Years of Corporate Constitutional Rights on Thursday, February 28th from 6 to 9 p.m. This is a drop-in event happening at the Just Bob Cafe, 2403 Northeast Alberta Street in Portland. More information is available at kboo.fm on the right-hand side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is a proud sponsor of the Clinton Street Resistance Series every Monday night at the Clinton Street Theater. Monday, February 25th, Clinton Street Resistance will screen Cry Freedom, where South African journalist Donald Woods is forced to flee the country after attempting to investigate the death in custody of his friend, the black activist Steve Biko. Again, that's Cry Freedom, showing Monday, February 25th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. It's 7 o'clock. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Up next, it's The Struggle with Alyssa Pariah. Her guests are Olivia Pace and A.J. Mendoza, speaking about this week's City of Portland listening session about Portland police reform. We're just going to jump right in. Stay tuned. This episode of The Struggle is being pre-recorded. I'm in the studio live with Olivia Pace and A.J. Mendoza.